We have much to rejoice over, don't we? Just a couple of items today. I believe I see the Tates new one making his debut at church for the first time today. Hunter Sindel, congratulations. We are welcome that this beautiful baby boy has arrived and come to us safely, and we rejoice with you. And then I think I also uh, read that it is Doug and Betsy Walker's 45th wedding anniversary. We rejoice with you. Uh, it is great to see how God can take two sinners, unite them together, and they still be in love with one another after 45 years. That is a supernatural work, brother. We are so delighted that uh, God has done this in you, and we rejoice with you. Let's uh, go to the Father in prayer. Lord, you have astounded us with how wonderfully graceful and faithful you are to us. As we have read earlier in the service, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and is extending to us now in this day. It is a marvelous grace, Lord, to be told of our great need for you. It is a marvelous grace to be made aware of the depth of our sinfulness. And it is a marvelous grace to know that you have overcome our sinfulness through the cross. And that by that, Lord, we can be reconciled to you and experience your loving kindness forevermore. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a taste of that this morning in the sermon. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. 1933, Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany. In that same year, the first concentration camp of Dachau opened, and the systematic persecution of Jews began, and the Nazi party is declared the only political party in Germany. In roughly a two-year span, Hitler and the Nazis had taken control of the entire nation of Germany. The following year, in June 1934, the Nazis murdered, murdered the Chancellor of Austria, thus paving the way for Hitler's annexation of that country. And that was complete four years later, calling it a union with Germany. In 1936, Hitler began to amass his army, and it occupies the Rhineland, which is in open defiance of the Treaty of Versailles. He forms alliances with Mussolini in Italy, which overwhelms the nation of Ethiopia and then also with Stalin, who systematically removes the opposition of his own generals in the Soviet Union. In 1938, Hitler amasses his forces on the border of Czechoslovakia, calling that nation a dagger into the heart of Germany. All signs point to Hitler being an aggressor and that he will invade the Czechs, and if he does so, it's obvious that Poland would become next on Hitler's agenda. All this occurs within five years. Dictator of Germany, the persecution of the Jews, the concentration camps, annexation of Austria, treaties that were signed after World War I broken, alliances with Italy and the Soviet Union, and the imminent invasion of Czechoslovakia. And sitting on the sidelines watching this aggression is the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. After the ravages of World War I, the war to end all wars, the last thing Chamberlain and all of Britain wanted was another European conflict. 
He wants to avoid war at all costs. So the prime minister, along with other European allies, travels to Munich in October of 1938 to meet with German dignitaries to negotiate a peace settlement. They get the Czechs to agree to concede certain number of territories to Germany in exchange for peace. This results in what is called the Treaty of Munich or the Munich Agreement. But before leaving the summit, Chamberlain requests a private audience with Hitler and receives one within the Fuhrer's personal headquarters. And Chamberlain takes out a document from this document that's entitled the Anglo-German Agreement, which contained three paragraphs, including a statement that the two nations consider the Munich Agreement, quote, symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to war again. According to Chamberlain, Hitler enthusiastically interjected, yeah, yeah. Both men signed the document then and there. Chamberlain took Hitler at his word, believing that he had obtained the peace that his nation so desperately wanted. And when he arrived by plane in London, a, a throng of people and reporters met him curious as to the results of the summit. And as Chamberlain exited the plane, he famously announced, quote, My good friends, this is the second time that there has come back from Germany to Downing Street, peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time, as he patted the document in his breast pocket. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. Fifteen days later, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia, causing that government to collapse, thus violating the Munich Agreement. And 11 months later from that, the Nazis invaded Poland, thus forcing the United Kingdom to declare war on Germany. It was obvious that Nazi Germany was building an empire in Europe. It was also clear that Adolf Hitler was an untrustworthy person. And yet, despite all the evidence to the contrary, Chamberlain thought he could trust Hitler. He thought he could avoid war. He has forever been blamed as the politician who was blindly naive and is used in anecdotes like I'm going to be using him today as the case of someone that refused to recognize all the obvious signs of reality and still plowed forward anyway. Now, I want to be fair to Chamberlain. There were two other considerations in his motives. After the tremendous loss of life in World War I, British citizens desperately wanted peace at all costs. In many ways, he was just listening and being pressured by his own electorate. And he was aware that Britain was not prepared for war in peacetime. They let their military capabilities dwindle, and he needed as much time as possible to amass them. But it only goes to show that Chamberlain refused to recognize the need when Hitler rose to power five years earlier, and he did not take his firebrand speeches seriously. Chamberlain's actions will serve as an illustration for us this morning with the Lord Jesus' final words in Matthew chapter 23. If you will, please turn back in your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 23. This is found on page 829 of your Bibles. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our author Matthew places this final warning here just as he completes this engagement with the Pharisees and right before Jesus launches into an extended teaching with his disciples on the topic of the last days which covers all of chapter 24 and 25. Now, in order to understand this, I need to place it in its context of what just transpired ever since chapter 21, verse 18, 
We've been covering this for the last six weeks, and, and I know many of you are probably tired of me rehashing it, but for the sake of someone new that's hearing it, please indulge me just a little bit here. It is Holy Week, the week before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And on that Monday, Matthew tells us of a curiosity that becomes symbolic for the rest of the week. Jesus comes upon a fig tree that shows all the signs of being healthy, but it is not bearing fruit. So he pronounces a curse upon it, saying, May no fruit come from you ever again. And the tree begins immediately to wither. And this becomes a metaphor for the conflicts in which he engages with the religious leaders of Jerusalem over the next two and a half chapters. Jesus has confrontations with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, and the Herodians, and all appear religious or look righteous on the outside, but they are dead on the inside. They bear no fruit. And like the curse upon the fig tree, chapter 23 becomes a sort of curse upon the Pharisees in particular as Jesus pronounces seven woes upon them. They had their opportunity to bear fruit, but that privilege will now be taken away from them. And as we saw last week, these men gave the appearance of looking good in their external actions, but in doing so, they completely missed the whole thrust of the Scriptures, which was the need for a Messiah to save them. What they really need is Jesus himself, the one that is sitting before them. And they reject him despite the evidence. Now, to be certain here, I'm not comparing the actions of Hitler to the evidence of Jesus. Quite the contrary. As there is a much greater danger than a man like Adolf Hitler in this passage, and it is a peril that must be addressed before we close out this section. And we're going to cover these final two verses under two headings. Compassion and judgment. Compassion and judgment. Just those two points. But there is a lot of meat on these two bones, and with apologies to our vegetarians, we're going to chew on those for a little bit here. As Jesus closes his pronouncement of woes upon the Pharisees, in verse 33, he asked, how are they going to escape hell? And he gives them a possible answer. He will send messengers to proclaim his gospel, but these self-righteous men will reject them and persecute those as well. The blood of the disciples will be on their hands. But at least they get a warning. Therefore, Jesus speaks with compassion once again using our verses this morning. Now, for our deep-diving students of the Bible, let me just take a moment here to tell you that, that Luke records the same exact words in Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. The chronology there appears to be off from how it's recorded here in Matthew. So we're not sure when Jesus uttered this phrase. Both authors report these same words under similar circumstances. Now, I don't think either is communicating a mistake in the Bible. Each author presents the material in a way that tells the story from their perspective. And ordering events like this was not unusual for the writings of ancient biographies. But I might add... It would not be too far-fetched that Jesus said this phrase often to the Jews. After all, he says very similar words at the end of Luke chapter 19. Either way, Matthew presents them to us here as a transition to Jesus' teaching on what happens to Judaism eschatologically. It will prepare the way for what comes next in chapter 24. Now, the average reader would, would understand this transition. It, it displays the compassion of the Messiah. Jesus uses a term of general rebuke to begin with as he refers to the city. He repeats its name, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
He gives the same kind of general rebuke when Martha felt that her sister Mary was being lazy. Remember there he said, Martha, Martha. When Simon Peter professes he'll stand beside Jesus till the better end, Jesus said to him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And in Acts chapter 9, when Saul is blinded by the light on the road to Damascus, Jesus will say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To repeat someone's name like this was a term of endearment. And Jesus does this to the citizens of Jerusalem. Jerusalem means God's city of peace. Originally, it was the the home to the priest Melchizedek, to whom Abraham gave a tenth of his possessions. But moreover, it was the place where God was pleased to place his temple as a symbol of his presence. After all, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. No, No building could ever contain him. But he was pleased to have it represent his presence with the people, just as the Ark of the Covenant did previously. And just as the Ark contained the law of God, the temple became the place of its enactment by faith. And while this was also the location of David's throne, where the kings of Israel would rule, much more important was the presence of the temple, where even David longed to see that built. He says in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And later, the sons of Korah obviously felt the same in Psalm 84. They say, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, thanks for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And because of what it represented, Jesus also had love and affection for Jerusalem. The temple sacrifices brought peace with God, which he will replace on that following Friday. But he had a charge against the city. It was a rebellion to the Lord. Whenever God wanted to call the city to repentance, it had a tendency to ignore his warnings. Even though there were Yahweh's chosen people there, they preferred their own selfish desires to please the self rather than please God, even though pleasing our Creator is always in our best interest. Remember, Jesus just charged them in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. When one examines Israel's history, despite sending prophet after prophet to warn the Jews of the coming judgment of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians, they not only rejected the message, they killed the Lord's messengers. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, said the same to the Jews right before they stoned him. At the end of Acts chapter 7, he declared, You stiff-necked people! uncircumcised in heart and in ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Even though God sent multiple prophets, they refused to listen. 
And of course, there was that chilling parable that Jesus told the religious leaders back in chapter 21. Remember in that story, a a king had a vineyard that he had leased out to renters, and he sent his messengers to collect the fruit that they owed him in payment. And in response, the the tenants killed each of them. Then the king sends his own son, thinking, well, surely they will respect my son. But they killed the son as well, confident that they think they could take the vineyard for themselves. Of course, the the king destroyed them and, and gave the vineyard to others for their transgressions. Jesus warned the religious leaders then, have you not read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Like the earlier fig tree, these Jews were not producing fruit. It was a consistent pattern of Jerusalem that she killed the prophets and stoned those whom the Lord sends to her. In fact, in verse 37, the Greek word here for kills and stones are both present active participles. That means these are actions, killing and stoning, that continues to happen over and over. And yet, despite their outlandish behavior, Jesus still has compassion for them. Verse 37, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Now, I have never raised chickens, but I've been told and I've read instances about mother hens protecting their chicks. I've heard that when a hen senses danger, she begins to try to round up and collect all of her babies. She'll do this not only if she hears a a dog or a fox, but she'll do this when other aggressive chickens are around. And there are stories of, of hen houses catching fire and farmers finding live baby chicks and eggs underneath the charred remains of the mother. The hen sacrificed her life for her children. I see this pattern in mothers all around me. Whenever a mother senses her son or daughter in danger, she goes into protection mode. And this image of the protective mother is what Jesus draws upon. He longs to gather them, especially knowing that danger is ahead. But even though such affection is extended to them by the very Son of God, he tells why they do not come to them. And it's simple. They were unwilling to come to him. They refused to yield. It was their own undoing. Jesus had demonstrated incredible, remarkable, even supernatural evidence that he is the Messiah. It is blatantly obvious. And yet they're unwilling to be gathered by Jesus. We've already spent a little time discussing why. The Apostle John put it succinctly, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And here is a distinct biblical truth, one that we as Christians are often criticized for, The foundational reason people do not come to Jesus is not because God refuses to enable them to come, but because people love their sin more than they love God. And that is the truth of the matter. We are that depraved. We are that sinful. 
Like pigs that love to play in the mud, we just love to wallow in our own sin. This has been the effect upon us ever since our first ancestors were presented with a choice to demonstrate their love for the Creator in a particular way. The choice was, was simple for Adam and Eve. If you love me, then don't eat of this one tree. Trust me on this. Everything else in the entire world is all for you. I will give you all that you need, but do not eat from that one single tree. But they did. They chose to live for self rather than to glory in their creator. Despite the fact that the creator wanted to give them everything that would fulfill them, including his presence. They did not want to trust God. Rather, they preferred to trust in themselves. And it's been that way for all of us ever since. And we're told why in Romans chapter 1. It's because despite the evidence to the contrary, we want to suppress the truth and believe the lie that we are in control and that we're under account to no one. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Part of the judgment against us is that God decreed, if that's what you want, to live for the created things rather than for me, then have at it. I will allow you to pursue that which will not satisfy you. It's like a parent that will allow the child to touch the hot pan so that they'll learn the lesson never to touch something that burns. But the problem with that analogy is that usually the child will stop touching things that bring pain. With sin, we never learn that lesson. We keep touching hot objects thinking that there will be a different result despite our souls becoming more and more blistered and callous. The scriptures are laden with the effect of sin in our lives. Paul commented later in Romans chapter 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. In the next chapter, he confirms this in Romans chapter 8, verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In his letter to Titus, he writes just how depraved we are, that we are utterly contaminated with sins. He writes in Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This was nothing new to him. He received this from the prophet Jeremiah, who lived 600 years before him. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Like the example of Jerusalem in this passage, each of us is so full of sin, and we refuse to recognize it. We're so bad off that we cannot even recognize just how depraved we become. We give license to transgress God's good commands any way we want as long as we think it's benefiting us. 
We, we will cheat on our taxes so we can keep that money even though we make uses of the protection of civil government. And we'll say to ourselves, we'll justify, ah, my government is corrupt with greed, so I'm not obligated to pay taxes. I don't get any benefits from it. Yeah, think that through for just a moment. Maybe the next time you're driving on a paved road or you eat at a restaurant and you see the health department rating on the wall or the sanitation workers that carry the garbage from your home, ask yourself, which of those things do you really want to give up? But we can rationalize anything in order to ignore the sin that's inside. For the people that I counsel with that struggle with porn, I see this justification all the time. My spouse isn't affectionate when I want him or her to be. Or this is the way I control my urges when I'm single. Or I had a rough week and I'm entitled to it. Or it's not hurting anyone, despite the fact that many people in those images are products of abuse and human trafficking. It's not just porn. It's any behavior that we think can soothe our soul in the moment. Overeating, substance abuse, spending money and running up credit card debt entering into an illicit relationship with someone, manipulating others to bend to our will? I could go on. We can tell ourselves lie after lie to get what we want. We really are that sinful. The Jews mentioned here are like Chamberlain, not because they refused to recognize the evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, but it was for not recognizing why they refused to recognize him as the Christ. That was because of their sin. They couldn't see the means of their salvation because they did not take seriously just how corrupt they were. Like Chamberlain, they were guided by much of, so much about what they wanted in that moment to see happen, they completely ignored the nature of sin. The same sin nature that drove Hitler to possess Europe at any cost and exercise his deepest prejudice, murdering over 6 million Jews and 5 million prisoners of war. Sin is that bad. Left unchecked, it grows us into the monsters that we are all capable of being. It's like a self-induced disease that we all have. And it is a blessing to be told you have this cancerous sin spreading throughout your body, and if you're willing to see it, there is a cure. But you can't ignore it. But this sin called out against the Jewish authorities will exact a particular judgment. In verse 38, Jesus says, See, your house is left to you desolate. The Greek word here for desolate means empty, abandoned, come to nothing. And this is what will become of Judaism without the Messiah. It will be meaningless, futile, empty. Like the fig tree, it will bear no more fruit because they're unwilling to come to Jesus. And strangely, we have verse 39 here. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from Psalm 118. What does this mean here? Didn't they just pronounce that to Jesus at his triumphal entry back in chapter 21, verse 9? Hasn't that event already happened already? Yes, prophetically, it occurred once as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. But that is not the only time that this event will occur. 
There was no real faith behind those words when Jesus made his entry into the city. The same people that are shouting this phrase from Psalm 118 will be the ones five days later that will also shout, crucify him, crucify him. So for those people, there was no faith, no fruit. But there will be a time in the future when Jesus will return to the earth a second time, and he's going to describe a little bit of that later in the next chapter. But it's going to be a time when people of faith, along with those who have no faith, will all say those words. To the redeemed, they will shout them in triumphant glory. There is our King, our Messiah, our Savior, the one that saved us. Blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. But to the lost, those who had no faith in him upon the earth, those who refused to submit to God, they also will have to confess the reality of those words. Blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord they'll have to confess the reality of it in judgment. Paul wrote that it's because, regardless of whether one submits or not, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And John reveals something similar in Revelation chapter 5. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The next time these unbelieving Jews will see Jesus, it will be a chilling pronouncement of judgment. As I mentioned before, these three verses are a transition to Jesus' extended teaching, the, the long sermon that he's going to give to his disciples, so to speak. That's the pattern that we've witnessed here in this gospel. This section reminds the reader to look back on all that has been revealed before. What, what does the Bible claim about humanity and about Jesus? How men and women and boys and girls are born into sin, and yet how despite their sin... The Lord God chose to save some through a particular people. He gave that people a law to live by so that they would know how to live as they were created and also just how holy and set apart their creator is from his creation. The Lord sent prophets to remind them of their obligations to them. And even in the midst of those warnings, he repeatedly referred to his steadfast love for them. He told them that he would send a suffering servant to save them, to make many accounted as righteous. And now Jesus has arrived as that servant to all. And just like the prophets of old, they refuse even him. In fact, like they did with the prophets, they will kill him. This is an instruction to look back at the patterns of the past. And despite their execution of the Messiah, it will not stop his mission to save his elect. It's just that they will no longer be a part of the salvific plan. So what will become of them and their temple? What will become of Jerusalem? What will the Messiah's ultimate coming look like? And here's that transition. 
In the following two chapters, just before his arrest, Jesus will next address what that future looks like, what it will hold for the people of Jerusalem, what will happen to their precious temple. That was a security blanket to them. Lord willing, I I hope we're going to be present to, to enter into that next phase of our study. But we must consider what we've heard today. Look at the evidence in your own heart. In fact, look at the evidence all around you. Do you see the sin? It is there. What about what we see in society? Uh, We're the most advanced that we have ever been, and yet we still see evil all around us. Injustices, murder, greed, lawlessness, everyone pursuing whatever they want for their own flesh and then being affirmed by everybody else to go do it. The tendency when we see these things is always to blame someone else for it. But do you see yourself as you are? That even the good you want to do, you do not. That you have this tendency to to live for self and not for the Creator. That you try to shut out His voice and do things your way. And yet, are you happy? Are you satisfied? Are you joyous? Are you secure that you will be at least one day? If you were able to see the depth of your sin, then that is a mercy. But it is not if you think you can continue to handle it yourself. That is futile thinking because you have never been able to get it under control, have you? Never. But the one speaking through his word this morning is offering his assistance. He is full of compassion right now with terms of endearment, calling you by name, whether it's a Sarah, Sarah, or John, John, or David, David, whatever your name might be. The thing is, he knows your name. And he longs to gather you like a mother hen that wants to protect her babies. He has proven his love. He has sacrificed his very blood to secure you to him. And that is who is calling you right now. But as he says, are you willing to respond? Are you willing to respond and come to him? Let's pray. Lord, today's message is a hard one, but it is the stark truth of reality. That, Lord, there is nothing inside of us that is good. We have chosen to rebel against you. We have lived for our own selfish desires rather than living for the one that created us, rather than living for the one who even had his best interest in mind for us. And yet, Lord, we rebelled. And each of us can say in our heart of hearts that we have done so. And that sin, Lord, has not only infected us, it has also impaired us. And I pray, Lord, that you would remove the blinders right now, that you would grant us grace to see us for how we really are. Helpless, confused, alone, wallowing in our own filth, and a deep desire for someone to rescue us. And I pray, Lord, that 
we would not be so prideful, that we will not be so stubborn to refuse your call, but that we would respond in this day, Lord, that we would come to you, that we would plead mercy, and we would find out that you have everything that we desperately need to be reconciled to you through your son Jesus and everything that we need to be satisfied. We pray, Lord, that we would have a great understanding of this and that would move us to realize that there is hope right now for the sinner. That the one who is sitting there feeling like there is no way I can ever be fixed, that you would impress upon them, have faith in me. Have faith in my son Jesus. Have faith in what he did on the cross on your behalf. Have faith in his resurrection. And that in the midst of that, Lord, it would bring them freedom. It would bring them hope. That they no longer have to be trapped by their own sin. That they no longer have to feel the despair that surrounds them in this world right now. But they can see the hope that you are coming. You are going to redeem your own. And that through that, Lord, you have done so because of what Christ has done. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.